Hello, data enthusiasts. This is Chris Detzel, and I'm Michael Burke. Welcome to Data Hurls. We are your gateway into the intricate world of data, where AI, machine learning, big data, and social justice intersect. Expect thought-provoking discussions, captivating stories, and insights from experts all across the industries as we explore the unexpected ways data impacts our lives. So get ready to be informed, inspired, and excited about the future of data. Let's conquer these data hurdles together. All right, welcome to another Data Hurdles. I'm Chris Detzel and... I'm Michael Burke. How you doing, Chris? Pretty good, man. Here in Dallas, it's raining and chilly outside. But other than that, it's almost the weekend, so I'm excited. Excellent. Christmas is right around the corner. I've finished all of my shopping, so I'm happy that I don't have that stress for those that do have to still go out and bear the crowds. Apologies. Uh, but today we have a special guest on board, Aditya Varanasi, and he is the CEO and founder of Awarity. Aditya, nice to meet you. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's nice to meet you both as well. What we'd like to do, and typically how we lead these conversations, is diving in a little bit about your background. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you came to be founder, is it, or co-founder? Founder. Founder and CEO of Awarity. Yeah. And maybe a little bit of background of your previous employment. Yeah, I think if you asked my younger self, the last thing I would have told you I would be is an entrepreneur in the marketing <laughs> space. I wouldn't have said entrepreneur, I would have said marketing. I started my career actually as a chemical engineer, got a degree from Purdue University in chemical engineering, and I joined Frito-Lay in the R&D group, so developing new products. And that was really where I first got exposed to marketing. So I had the privilege of attending focus groups with the marketing team, seeing how customers react to their product needs, product designs, and it was eye-opening for me. I really loved it. And what, what attracted me to it is two things. One, it's the intersection of everything associated with the business, consumer design, product design, financial considerations, competitive considerations, other strategic considerations, customer considerations, retailer considerations. And because ultimately we're selling to a retailer but it's a consumer that's buying it from the retailers. We're actually designing in a way for both. And what drew me was there's no one right answer. There's almost limitless degrees of freedom and how to think about solving and developing solutions that it's like golf. You're just never good enough. There's always an opportunity to get better and learn something. And I think not, no, not thinking about that in aware, with top of mind awareness at the time, but that's really what drew me to the marketing discipline. So Ultimately went to uh, Northwestern, got my MBA, and then came back to Frito-Lay in the brand marketing group. And there I had the privilege of working on brands like Cheetos and Cracker Jack and did some work on Lay's and Tostitos and learned a lot Love about Cracker Jacks. Cracker Jack, awesome. That's where I had the privilege of learning a lot about marketing and how it's done at world-class companies. And it was there that I had, there were kind of two transformational insights that I learned during my time there that informed what I'm doing today. And I think one of them, your audience will find particularly interesting is we put all of our marketing mix into a regression model. We had actually a third party vendor do it. So we would take which weeks did we have TV? Where did we run TV? which weeks did we have digital? What was the pricing by retailer? What was the merchandising? What other advertising were we doing? What was competitive activity? When did we introduce new SKUs? 
new sizes to the market? What was the distribution? Everything you can imagine that ultimately drives the top line of this brand. And the model spit out a coefficient and an R squared for every single attribute. And it sounds really intelligent, but take a step back for a quick second and say, okay, it says pricing is an efficient driver of growth. Does this mean we just keep discounting the price till it's free <laughs> and we have unlimited growth? There's some limits on how much each of those could actually function. That was intriguing. But the thing that was even more interesting for me, and I think it's because I had the engineering background, I knew how to run regressions. I was able to replicate some of it on my own computer is what about, what about the interaction of variables? Yeah. So, okay, we've isolated, we're assuming no codependence of variables with this model. And so I had them rerun. We couldn't run all the iterations, but I had them rerun it with a few. And we looked at things like what was the lift when we had TV plus merchandising plus pricing at the same time. And what we saw is that the lift was higher than the sum of each of those individual coefficients. Yeah. And that's the thing when you're looking at, at data, when you're making database decisions, you always have to take a step back and say, does this really make sense? And if you look at it now from a completely different lens, look at it from the consumer that's buying that bag of Cheetos. They're at home, they're watching TV, they see a Cheetos commercial. And if you remember Cheetos commercials, they show Chester, he's being playful, mischievous, he's doing something silly. You're seeing the orange, goofy looking product, mm -hmm. bright orange and it's crunchy. And when you see it- Flaming Cheetos was really popular too, but anyways. <laughs> it still is. Yeah. But it makes yeah. you feel like a kid again, but you yeah. don't think, you don't sit there and cause like, oh, I am seeing this commercial and I feel yeah. like a kid again. Nobody ever says that, but the verbalist sentiment that you feel is you feel like a kid when you're seeing it and you remember mm. what it was like when it's you true. were a kid having that. And so that emotion is what sticks. Mm -hmm. Then you go to the store and that emotion's now fresh in the back of your mind and Cheetos on a merchandising <laughs> unit in a high traffic uh, area and you're I just- you're going to be much more likely to notice it. And then yeah. you see it's on sale and you're like, all right, I got to pick this up. And, yeah. and, and that transcends, look, everybody say, oh, Cheetos. Yeah, that's one thing. But what about my product? Every product purchase is made the exact same way. There's mm -hmm. subconscious cues because a product is emotionally meeting a need that we have. And then there's how do you reduce friction for the consumer if they have desire for that product to make it available at that point of purchase. And Every transaction we undertake has a strong emotional underpinning that we then use a little bit of logic and reason to ultimately justify. So that really stuck with me that, hey, this thing that people talked about ages ago that people need to see an average of seven times before they take action in advertising is actually true. And the data mm -hmm. proves it. The second thing is then I said, okay, so advertising is important and advertising makes the things at point of sale work harder. How do we think about effective advertising? And it really comes down to three things. Reach, are you reaching the right people? And are you reaching enough of them? Because you need scale. Are you doing so at an appropriate frequency? You don't want to oversaturate a market because if you oversaturate, you're going to see diminishing returns. What's the difference in influence from seeing an ad five times versus 10 times versus 50 times in a month? At some point, there's diminishing return in there. But you don't want to see it too little. You don't want to just see it like once a month because that may not stick. And then you have to present a compelling message. You know, we're exposed to four to 6,000 ads a day. We don't remember four to 6,000 ads. The ones we remember 
are the ones that are simple and speak to us. And by speak to us, they meet some kind of rational or emotional need that we have to make our life just a little bit better. That could be a B2B product. That could be a consumer product, whatever it is. And the ones that speak to us are the ones who remember. I, I so I took a step back and I said, hey. I was yeah, just going to say, I, I couldn't agree more. And I just, I come back to this feeling of to bring up Coca-Cola, sorry, your biggest competitor and Pepsi, right? Like these drinks, soft drinks, right? It's caramel color and sugar. But yet, yeah. what do you think of when you think of a Pepsi? You think of a good time. What do you think of with Coca-Cola? It's family. There's these ingrained marketing patterns that you've been receiving your entire life. And I drink Coke. I don't know why. It's not good for me. It tastes okay, right? And Pepsi, but it's incredible how powerful that marketing is that we did this exercise years ago where we picked up a bottle of Coke, right? And immediately it was like, just write down what you feel. And you had all these intrinsic feelings that had nothing to do with the soft drink that were powering your need for it, your want to buy it, your want to bring it to a party or whatever, right? And it's just incredible how much that subconscious sticks with you if you have the right marketing and that balance of pricing and advertising driving home the availability. And when you do that, the cyclical need of when it becomes more important, I think is just incredible. You know, when you start pairing those three together uh, and something from a data science perspective, like I think we can measure, but there's also a lot of tr intrinsic variables, right? That you can't put down on a spreadsheet. When you're going into these kind of projects where you have to manage all these variables, thousands of variables, understanding the demographic, who your target audience is, what their needs are, what the story is. How do you lay that all out into a plan? Yeah, I think you have to start with the goal and you have to be realistic about what you can impact and when. But to add a, a point to your thing about Coke, it's not just the marketing. The product experience has to deliver that. If you didn't have real life totally. experiences yep. that resonated with connecting with family, friends, social <laughs> events, whatever that is, the advertising is going to fall flat. Yep. So the, the product message has to be realistic with the role that it plays in your life. And there has to be alignment with that. So really what good advertising does is it reminds you the role it can play for a high awareness brand and for a low awareness brand, it educates you on the role that it can play. But yeah, how do you take confounding variables? I think, look, I'm a big believer. You got to start simple. Yeah. The world is full of variables that you can control and not control. You have to keep it simple and keep it realistic. I think data scientists, I'm not a formal data scientist. I like to pretend I'm one on the side, but <laughs> well, we like to boil the ocean. We like to look at everything from every possible angle. And I think totally. that curiosity is important, but we then have to take a step back and say, what really matters? What's the end result that matters? And what's the realistic time horizon? Like when it comes to marketing, one of the biggest fallacies that I see is people want to say, okay, I turned on advertising today. I should see sales growth tomorrow. If your purchase cycle is four years, like a car, you're not going to see sales growth tomorrow because only a finite number of people are actually buying a car on that date. And it takes time for that advertising to disseminate and ultimately drive influence. And so there has to be realistic alignment with the whatever KPI you're trying to shape on the time horizon to actually see movement on that on those KPIs. I love it. I think it's so incredible too, like what you said about product placement and providing that value and reinforcing that story, being 
true to what your product really offers. The Flaming Hot Cheetos, Chris, another amazing example, right? Like, I think we all have probably had those at one point or another in our life, and it makes you feel like a kid, right? It makes you feel young. I always Definitely. feel guilty if I eat them now, right? Because it's going to add on pounds for me. But I think it's incredible. So everything in moderation. Everything yeah, in yeah, moderation. Exactly. I agree. I agree. <laughs> but how do you, as a, this is something I've always been curious about. So we're going down a little bit of a rabbit hole. How do you provide that balance of brand awareness versus targeted advertising, right? And how much of that is getting people noticed and aware of your product versus actually understanding and consuming the value of it in an ad? Yeah, look, I think that's one and the same. Yeah. I think one way that if you, when you have limited resources and look, you could look at Cheetos and say, we had unlimited resource. That's not true. We had a budget and we had to stick within the budget and we always <laughs> wanted more budget. We had a limit. We couldn't be everywhere every, at every second. And so we, you have to make choices. And I think those choices are reflective of going back to reach frequency and a compelling message. How do you serve your ads in the place where you're most likely to reach your target consumer? Totally. And so that could be on TV with programs and channels. If it's with our advertisers, I'll talk about programmatic advertising. We can be very targeted down to the zip code to where your target customer is likely to be. We can place your ad alongside content that's relevant to your target customer. So you're not wasting that media on people less likely to buy. You're focusing your limited resources where customers are most likely to be interested in what you have to offer. I love that. I think it's amazing. I go back to the story I had when I was trying to sell Password Manager years ago. And we were trying to reach out to the heads of IT, right, to sell this product, the people who were responsible for buying this enterprise software. And what we found out is that, like, that person gets bombarded with ads all the time, right? It's everybody's target audience. Everyone's going after it. And what we found is that there were people within these organizations that were power users of our product who were yeah. using it for free. We reached out to them and we completely transformed our sales strategy as far as how we penetrated the IT buyer. And we armed these power users with the content that they needed to be able to promote the product internally. And this is definitely like much more of an enterprise play, but can, you give, a couple of, can you give a couple examples of when you're trying to define these strategies, right? Of, I'm assuming that's part of the kind of role of, of your business is helping companies come up with these strategies and these um, penetrations. How do you define the customer, right? Is that something that you leave up to them? Do most of your customers typically have that in mind? Or is that something that you work with them to identify as you step into this kind of more of a journey-based approach? I think first thing you have to say, what defines a potential customer? And yeah. there could be demographic considerations. There could be life stage considerations. <laughs> there could be psychographic considerations. There could be life, there could be geographic considerations, which tie back to, to demographics. So what we do is we'll listen to what the customer says, but we have a process. We'll look at their site. We'll come up with a recommendation and we'll try to find the lowest common denominator that overlaps with their hypothesis and things that we can deliver on and make sure they're aligned to that. because. There's limitations on who and exactly how you can serve ads. We want to make sure their target is congruent with what we can deliver against. So I would say it's a partnership. Yeah. I think generally the folks we're working with, by the time they're thinking about investing in awareness advertising, these are businesses that have a, a semi-mature, at least a semi-mature sales and marketing process. 
Right. They've gotten their business to a stage where they have a, an idea who their target customer is. And then we become just like a sounding board and maybe help hone it with some of our experience and matching it to add targeting. The ones that struggle are the smaller ones that are still trying to figure it out. And they have a much broader definition of who their target customer is. And they, they're not exactly sure how to articulate it. And we'll help them. We'll help them hone it. I love that. Five to 10 years out, right? Everything I feel like is going to change with generative AI, these cohorting mechanisms getting smarter. Data collection has just become such a big focus of everybody's business, right? Detzel and I was previously at a master data management company, huge opportunities and growing astronomically now with the surge in AI, right? Because you need good data to have good models. How do you see advertising changing over the next five to 10 years? I think, I think the biggest thing you'll see is ads will be a couple of things. I think you'll see greater control over privacy. Yeah. You're seeing that be legislated. And so consumers are going to want greater control over their privacy. You're seeing the platforms offered Apple with iOS 14.5 offered an automatic opt out of cookies. Yep. So you're going to start to see consumers want privacy, but then there's this tension. Some of that data is what allows the internet to be free. It allows certain things to be free that we don't have to pay for because that data can be monetized. So there'll be that healthy tension there. But I think the tool, the emerging tools of data collection and privacy free, not privacy free, but targeting that doesn't violate privacy restrictions, I think it's going to lend to hopefully more relevant ads, meaning good advertising is matching a product with a need yep, and matching a consumer, ultimately a consumer with a product where there can be a, a mutual fit between the two. And so in an idealistic world, I'd like to say that's where it'll go. But there's always going to be players pushing the envelope and playing out of bounds. And those are the folks that are ultimately going to define what rules get put in place. And that's unknown is as, as this emerges, where are those rules and regulations and where are consumers going to opt out because somebody's abused that information to then create restrictions on that fit. And so you'll have everything. You'll have good actors trying to say, hey, how, how do we at least get the ad in front of the right people? And then you'll have people saying, how do we push an agenda that and use this data in a way maybe it wasn't intended to use? And I don't know, the market will bear it out as if we know anything, the market will bear it out over five to 10 years. I think we'll find something where hopefully the ads we see are much more relevant to what we need. Absolutely. I think it's so incredible. I've seen a couple companies and a few that I've talked to in this space of marketing that are doing some wild stuff, right? And I think this is only for super, super large companies, but dynamic product placement. Some of these things where they're yeah. using AI to change what products are in a movie, depending on the geography, as an example, right. Right. or in games now, which I think is incredible. Gaming advertisements. Do you think yep. that TV is going to change in the same way. I'm sure it's already out there. I'm sure there's dynamic advertisement in a lot of these products. I'm not an expert in this space. Will we see more customization over the next five to 10 years, do you think? Could things be even customized down to the sub-region space or even individual? No, I would expect so. Look, that's if you watch Connected TV right now, which is a service we offer, Connected TV Advertising, Connected TV advertising so that's on streaming apps like Pluto yep. TV and... Hulu and Roku, non-skippable 30-second commercials, you and your next-door neighbor could literally be streaming the exact same program 
but you're both likely to get different commercials Incredible. based on the profile of your house. It's happening today. <laughs> That's the service we offer yep. today. And yes, you're going to see that continue. I think Amazon touted the same thing with their Friday afternoon football game after Thanksgiving. Yep. Where it was audience specific commercials, which has been out there, but they were touting it as something new. You're going to start to see that emerge more and you're going to, you're going to see, I think it's all going to come down to cost benefit. And I know that sounds really simple, but take something like generative product placement where the snack food item on the kitchen table in that show varies based on where you are. At some point, mm. somebody's got to figure out what's the assigned value of it and what's the assigned processing cost of the placement. What's the reach frequency message? Yep. And the market's going to bear if it's worth it or not. I always wonder too, with a lot of these agencies, right? It is so costly to collect and manage all of that data for your KYC, mapping and understanding the identities of your customers and the personas of your customers, they can frequently change in some industries. Do you think that at some point, the way that we collect data about people might change as well? Like I know that there's been talks about opt-in data sets, right? Allowing the user to share what they want to about themselves with the world, or even for an incentive. There's been a couple startups that have started to emerge. Do you think that you'll see more of this kind of less commercialized data sharing and more user-controlled data sharing in the future? It's going to be a mix. Yeah. I think it's going it, to be, because right now, look, there's, when you walk into a store, you're on camera. Yep. And what's to say that at some point, those images are processed to where there, somebody's going to be creating maps of where you go in store. And at some point, maybe the screens change based on where you're walking in the store. <laughs> and so technology, I'm just making, I just made that no, no, up. No, I hear you. On, I hear you. Gap. Yeah. <laughs> but that's what's, that's their cameras. They have a right to film you for those purposes. And so I don't, it's hard to say, cause we're in this kind of this new age of certain things are opt-in, certain things are not, certain things are, they're going to happen regardless of what we say or do. And it's going to take time as it sorts out, but ultimately consumers are going to have a voice with their wallets. You're going to have businesses and brands and advertisers are going to have a voice. And then you're going to see government regulations try to help bridge the two or maybe go with whichever one lobbies them harder. It's amazing. I have two fun stories I'm going to share. The first, I think, is just so pivotal because we're right around December, is about Christmas advertisements, right? I find this hilarious that my wife, I can almost guess what she's purchased for me for Christmas, for the holidays. <laughs> Because I'm getting targeted the ads because we live in the same house, right? The advertisement yeah. hasn't been able to isolate. Like all of a sudden I'm getting these crazy ads for things that I've not looked at, but clearly nobody in the house is looking at other than me or her. So it's just so funny. I think that targeting functionality and I wonder how much more granular we can get right now. A lot of it is based off the cookie or the IP. And we're going away from those things, but what's going to be next that helps us better identify who's really interested in something, especially in a densely packed geographic area, like a city or a building where you could have tons of people operating on the same IP address, or it gets very confusing, I feel like. And I think that we still haven't totally figured out how to um, 
to granularize our data and our targeting to that extent. And because of that, sometimes, at least I've seen, it seems like a lot of wasted spend. What strategies are there today to reduce that or better monetize your targeting in an ad campaign? One thing we use in a lot of our campaigns is what's called contextual targeting. So yep. if you're an HVAC company, we'll try to advertise if somebody's viewing a website, reading about their air conditioner not cooling or their heater not working, or yep. how do you know if your capacitor went out? And when those topics appear on a website and that site's being viewed within the service area of that company, that's where we'll try to place their ad. It's privacy free. We're not, we know nothing about that person. There's no yep. personal data. We just have identified that publisher and that content as a place you want to be. Just like the old print days where you'd want to be alongside certain articles, advertise financial products along financial news, as an example, it's the same concept today. So that's something we try to do is to stay relevant. You're also seeing we're in this no man's land with the cookie. Yep. So the cookie wasn't designed for what it's being used for. I won't get into it, but if you go do a, a little research, the cookie was designed for something completely different than it's being totally. used for. Yep. Today, it's, it's being blocked now by various browsers and iOS and Google is working on something. There's companies like LiveRamp that have the ramp ID. Mm -hmm. So there are companies out there working on other online identifiers that are more robust, still provide security and anonymity to the users. So they're not violating any privacy, but it will track certain behaviors online for targeting arguably more effectively than the cookie did. And I think, it, again, it goes back to that tension of the internet and a lot of content on the internet that we consume, news, weather, sports, it's free because they can advertise on those pages. And so that's it, one thing that always drives me nuts is when people use ad blockers. Unfortunately, in the U.S., it's not a very high percentage, but it's like, you realize that's what keeping the internet free. Otherwise, we have to pay for every website that we visit. Nobody wants that. Yep. So having a little ad on the side is a small price to pay to keep that content free for us. So with all these services that you've integrated, what are the, some of the biggest challenges that you've seen in integrating AI into this, right? I'm assuming that we come to the same data problems. If you've got a live ramp and you've got 10 other data providers providing you contextual data, then you've got your AdWords. How do you seam all that together to make sense of it? Yeah, I think you have to go back to the original point that I was, I was making earlier, which is keep it simple. What's the use case? Yep. Uh, instead of saying, hey, AI's possibilities are limitless, which they are, you have to say, what is a problem I can solve today that will make a discernible impact immediately when we implement it? And start there and then you can build. And that's ultimately what we've done. Um, we found use cases and how we buy the media where we've developed our own AI that can ingest things that are normally done manually. And the, when they're done manually, you have to charge a lot more. You have to run larger campaigns and you can't be quite as granular. And right. we've automated it with AI such that a small business can get optimization on a local campaign, arguably better than an enterprise campaign could because it's now powered by our AI. Amazing. And so I think it all comes down to starting with the use case and then continuing to build around. Take Amazon as an example. The web came out in the 90s. Everybody knew it was going to change our lives. But if you ask people in 1992, nobody knew exactly how. But we knew it was going to change our lives. And you had some entrepreneurs say, this is a consumer problem I can solve right now. 
And you look at Amazon just selling books online and how he just continued to add and add and add. And now they're the everything store through the internet. It's amazing. It's amazing how advertisement and a simple product idea, give you a little bit of background right now, I'm in a role where I develop startups. I have a simple idea that's focused enough as selling books online can evolve to something like the anything store, right? And two-day shipping right. and all of these innovations that have changed the way we operate online. Right. As we continue forward a little bit, how does your company differentiate amongst a diverse set of clients? It is difficult to be an expert at any one industry. How do you learn to understand what is the necessary things that you need to target? And how does the company provide those yeah. insights to you to create value? So we come at it a different way. Rather than trying to become an expert in every industry, we've invested in becoming an expert in the tools of advertising that are available. And when you know the tools, then it's easier to figure out which tools to apply to each industry based on what they need. So we rely a little bit on the client to tell us what their goals are and a little bit about who they're trying to reach. And we'll say, these are the tools and this is how it could work. And that started even in the early days. There was a large B2B company that came to us. There was a co-working group that came to us. And I was like, oh, I don't know if I even thought about ever running advertising <laughs> for something like this. Yeah. But as I looked at the tool, we're like, hey, here's five things we could do to help you guys reach your prospective customers. And they were really happy. They, we ran the campaign. They're like, this is incredibly efficient. This is better than anything else out there in terms of advertising. We would pay three, four X to do this anywhere else. And so... That's where I think it's about, for us, it's about staying in our lane and being experts in the tools at our disposal. And when you're an expert of the tools, you don't have to be an expert on all the problems. You let them define the problem and then you know which tools can get you there. And you're just honest about the limitations of the tools. Excellent. I, I completely agree. And I love that approach of just being an expert on the tools and you'll be supplied the industry. It's incredible. Aditya, thank you so much for jumping on the call today. Detzel, anything else on your end you'd like to add? No, I, I just know that the questions I was going to ask were going to be completely different and off topic. And so you took this in a, another direction. Really, was insightful. So thanks. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm curious. Yeah, the goal for me was to ask about your background, the company, where you get to the company, CEO type questions. And he went deep into advertising and I loved it. I learned a ton today. If I asked my questions now, then they'd be off, but definitely want to have you on again. But thanks everyone for tuning in to another Data Hurdles. Please rate and review us. My name is Chris Detzel and... I'm Michael Burke. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks everyone. <laughs>